welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. I'm Sarah Butler and you're listening to Location Matters. And today we're going to be talking all about remote sensing, which at its core is acquiring information about an object without physical contact using advanced sensor technologies. Capturing this data across large areas of land enables us to understand the environmental change over time. We can use this data to gain insights into the extent of deforestation or understand the environmental impact of a mine from exploration through to rehabilitation. I'm lucky today to be joined by Sam Atkinson, manager at EO Data Science, and Crystal Dobson, our senior account executive for resources at NGIS. Thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. So I want to get started with this remote sensing topic by talking about, I guess, covering the basics and explaining what remote sensing is in its purest form and what types of remote sensing are out there. Thanks, Sarah. Um, yes, well, remote sensing is a you know a really broad topic. So I think today let's just talk about remote sensing as it's applied within the Earth observation context. So... It's often divided up remote sensing into kind of two categories based on the major types of sensors that are used, that being either passive or active sensors. So passive sensors, in their essence, measure solar radiation that's reflected from the Earth's surface. And there's a massive range of passive sensors out there, and they're all kind of measuring different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum and dividing the response into any number of bands. So in many ways, these sensors are are kind of like normal cameras, So reflected light passes through a lens and an aperture and then lands on an array that measures the intensity of that light. The key difference being that most sensors used for remote sensing or earth observation not only capture the normal three bands or red, green and blue that we see in a camera and relate to the visible spectrum as our eyes see them, but also electromagnetic radiation that our eyes don't see. So, like I mentioned, the response is divided into many bands and the selection of those bands, both when you're using the data and also when the satellites are designed, has a lot to do with the intended use of the data. For example, some spectral bands are highly responsive to vegetation. So if you're doing studies on vegetation, then you're going to be really interested in those red, thread and near-infrared parts of the spectrum. So then we have active sensors, which are a, a totally different thing. So radar and LIDAR sensors are the most common there, and active sensors emit the energy source themselves, and then they measure that reflection. So active sensors have the advantage of not being constrained by incoming solar radiation. So most imaging or passive satellites, for example, they capture their images at 10.30 in the morning local time because that's the right sun angle to get a good reflection, so their orbits are based around that whereas active sensors can capture at any time of the day or night because they're emitting their own energy source. And also the long wavelength of some radar satellites, for example, can penetrate through clouds, and bathymetric LIDAR is used for underwater surveys, and that can penetrate 70 metres through the ocean in, in good conditions. So that's the advantage of an active sensor. And then also as well, which is from the Earth observation point of view, Depending on the sensor and condition, some active sensors have really good penetration through vegetation because often we're interested in in looking at the ground surface itself rather than what's on it. Another, I suppose, key thing to explain about remote sensing is that it almost always generates image data. You commonly see the file format as a geotiff, but they are pictures, they're images, and a lot of what we do is essentially image analysis. And what would you say are some of the key challenges to using remote sensing? 
I think probably the main one is just the sheer volume of data that needs to be managed and processed. So, for example, you know, a single Landsat image has a size of about 800 megabytes and they get captured, the entire globe gets imaged by the Landsat satellites uh, every 16 days. So you can imagine that that's a huge volume of data and that the Landsat mission's been happening since the late 70s. So there is just an absolute mountain of data to deal with and that has historically really constrained kind of industry applications of remote sensing. So the knowledge has been in place in terms of the mathematics, the data's been available since the 1980s and even before that. But we haven't actually had the kind of networking or processing power to meaningfully use it in a timely manner. Fortunately, it's really starting to change, particularly with onset of cloud computing. And there's some other factors that are really driving the rapid growth of remote sensing, and that's the increased availability and the rapidly decreasing cost of data. So there's now more than 700 Earth observation satellites active, currently active, and the number of them is growing exponentially. And then, of course, we've got drones as well providing ultra-high-resolution imagery, and those captures can be done at a, a really low cost and on demand by people using the data. And the other thing that's really driving the industry forward at the moment, causing a lot of excitement, is the recent advances in machine learning, particularly with what Google's doing with TensorFlow, and that's really enabling entirely new applications of Earth observation data to be conceived and also put into practice by industry. Thanks, Sam. I think it would be great to kind of delve into the industry perspective of how remote sensing could be used. And given that we're, we're here in Western Australia, where mining plays a huge role in our economy, I'm sure it's just one industry that must be capturing enormous amounts of data daily. But what information can you capture, Crystal, using remote sensing? And what insights can you pull using this data for the resources industry? Thank you, Sarah. That's a good question. Uh, The resources industry is very familiar with remote sensing. Both satellite and airborne acquisition of remotely sensed data is extremely useful in exploring large deposit alteration systems at the surface uh, using both multi- and hyperspectral data. DTMs can be derived easily using LiDAR, um, even through heavy coverage. Not that we have a lot of that in Australia, but there are some areas that that is extremely useful. The biggest challenge, as I see it, in exploration is the confidence in understanding the mineral systems at depth. So for the most economic approach to proving out a model and the subsequent extraction of that mineral, At the exploration stage, combining extremely large volumes of disparate data, such as remote sensing, in conjunction with complex 3D geophysics, geochemistry and geological data, in a single cloud-based environment, um, can lock insights at speed. And these are a lot of insights that had not previously been investigated. So the resources industry is definitely acutely aware of the time required and the challenges associated with efficiently using these data assets. Um, another example in, in mining, surveying. So they, the surveying teams also routinely use remote sensing data. Examples of this include drone surveys for stockpile inventories and LIDAR surveys used in mine planning. Another really common application of for remote sensing in the resources industry is in environmental monitoring as well. So that's an area I've done a lot of work over the years. And, and at its essence, one of the key challenges for environmental monitoring is just the sheer number of personnel hours required to undertake field surveys. That combined with the inherent safety risks for people doing surveys in remote and in the Western Australian context, often very hot areas, 
and also combining that with the sometimes huge areas that actually need to be monitored. So remote sensing can greatly overcome uh, these challenges and also improves the robustness of monitoring programs. While some field surveys are usually required to ground truth the remote sensing, the time and exposure of employees to risk is, is greatly reduced and that's obviously a key focus for our industry here. And the monitoring of vegetation health to ensure kind of various mining related risks don't impact the environment is one of the most common applications of remote sensing. But there are some other kind of key advantages, including the ability to access historical earth observation data and examine environmental dynamics from long before the mine was started or even before the deposit was identified. And this can really help to kind of disentangle natural variability and climate-related changes to vegetation health from potential mining-related effects. So that's something that we do a lot of using the earth observation data archives. And another valuable application of earth observation in mining is in compliance reporting. So, for example, in WA, mining companies need to map and report annually on areas of ground disturbance. Remote sensing techniques enable kind of rapid and mostly automated ways of doing this task, rather than the traditional approach, which is somebody or multiple people spending days or weeks manually digitising aerial imagery. Right, so I know from reading things in the news, and in fact, Sam, you shared a news article with me not too long ago when you and I were talking about all of this, was that monitoring tailings dams is is really topical at the moment. And that news story you sent me, was that a a failure in a dam in, was it South America? Uh, Yes, that was possibly the, actually, no, there was a, I can't remember the name of the site at the moment, but um, I think that's about their third tailings dam failure over the in the recent years um, just recently how can i'm interested to see when you you hear about things like that really disastrous consequences of events like that you know what role does remote sensing play in maybe helping to prevent tragedies like this i might jump in there sarah so um i think there's about 3500 tailings dams globally and in 2019 alone, six of them failed. So nearly every one of these failures caused environmental damage and some failures in the last few years have had catastrophic impacts with multiple fatalities as well. Uh, um, I'm not sure if the one that you were speaking of was the Samarco event in 2015. That might have been it, yeah. So that was perhaps the most infamous. So the cost to mining companies of these failures is obviously massive. So even the smallest of failures can cause significant production delays and repair costs. And given the number of people on sites and the cost of the equipment hire and so forth, you can understand how the costs can get up quite quickly when there's a delay. Satellite-based synthetic aperture radar systems are now being used to monitor tailings dams for very small movements and deformations that indicate geotechnical instability. Synthetic aperture radar, or SAR for short, uh, data is used for interferometry. So you said that's SAR systems? Correct, SAR. How accurate, maybe Sam you want to take this one, how accurate would you say SAR systems are? bit of of semantics around accuracy versus precision. So INSAR systems are extremely precise and by that I mean they can measure changes in the earth's surface over large-ish areas of smaller three millimetres change in elevation. 
whereas LiDAR typically captures in the 10 to 30 millimetre range of accuracy. So INSAR is more precise, but LiDAR is more accurate when it comes to measuring kind of all the lumps and bumps in the landscape and also measuring large changes, so for example if there's an excavation. And SAR systems aren't so great at measuring that sort of change. But really the beauty of INSAR systems is being able to, over large areas, measure very small deformations and these can be tricky to um, measure accurately using kind of conventional surveying techniques. So I'll just add in as well that INSAR is being used to monitor hundreds of tailings dams as well as water dams, pipelines, rail infrastructure, tunnelling projects under major cities. It's also used for looking at aquifer drawdown or or recharge in some circumstances which can actually lift the surface of the earth above it by very small amounts. So the key advantage of INSAR is that it provides an early detection of geotechnical instability to tailings dam operators so they might see that an otherwise stable dam wall has all of a sudden just started moving by a couple of millimetres a month. What that does is that enables them to kind of take preventative actions so may or may not stop the dam from failing but at the very least it allows them to minimise or eliminate the risk to human life, minimise environmental impacts and and importantly as well with some of these events is to minimise the business consequences which for a number of these major failings, particularly the Samarco event, had um, really high impacts on those businesses that were operating those mines. So there's a huge safety play here as, as well as giving people the time to deal with contingency yeah, absolutely. Yeah, wow. That's that's pretty that's a pretty amazing use case. Do you think that a lot of industries realize the value in INSAR at the moment? Um, it's seeing a lot of uptake. So the I suppose the after effects of the Samarco tailings dam failure was essentially at the board level for a lot of publicly listed companies where all of a sudden they were really concerned about what's happening at each one of their sites when it came to what was now realised to be a major business risk. And that's certainly driving a lot of uptake. And some other changes, kind of going back to a point I made before, is radar's been around for a long time, since the Second World War, as we all know. But it's really only in the last four or five years that computing has caught up to the point where we can actually process that data with a pretty quick turnaround. So even 10, 15 years ago to do the sorts of analysis now that's been turned around in 24 hours was a couple of weeks worth of compute, which kind of took all the timeliness out of the measure. So it's, it's again, it's another piece of kind of old tech, but now that computing power has caught up, it's really opening up another, a whole heap of real-world applications where it can have impact. So we're talking about things are improving in the technology space. I guess things are becoming a lot easier for people to do now in the remote sensing space. But how would you say specifically that the techniques have changed more recently with how we work with remote sensing data? Well, probably the key one is cloud processing. So there's, you know, there's a lot of good examples of those. Um, Google Earth Engine's probably the best example when it comes to Earth observation and putting really the exciting thing with something like Earth Engine is be able to take the questions to the data rather than having to spend seriously days or weeks on a lot of hard drives downloading data, backing up data, pre-processing data. And now you can kind of jump straight to what is the question and start testing and, and repeating those tests until you reach an outcome. And, and also when it comes to actually having a real-world impact, it enables data to be processed rapidly through to the point where there's insights that are actually still timely and meaningful on ground for any number of applications, be they business or environmental monitoring related. So Crystal, with your knowledge of the resources industry and the context that you were able to provide us with a little bit earlier, how do you see, after hearing what Sam's just said about cloud technology, 
How do you see the resources industry evolving over the next few years with the advancements in cloud that we're seeing now? Uh, Good question, Sarah. So the resources industry is on the verge of mining 4.0, so referring to the fourth industrial revolution. So this uh, describes effectively smart and autonomous systems fueled by data and machine learning. Now, the reality is in mining that it's differentiated from other more cloud-centric industries in terms of being partially, if not sometimes completely offline in remote areas, having unreliable comms and having a huge legacy data challenge. So due to this, there is still much work to do around the data component as well as the adoption of platforms and cloud infrastructure to fully leverage the power of machine learning, analytics and automation in mining. So a bit of a way off. The first valuable step, as I see it, is just to embark on this journey to learn and start to prepare yourselves to tap into future innovations at scale and at pace. So we do have a few customers that we're working with. Um, The goal in mining is to make every shift the most optimal and the use of intelligent digital twins in the cloud can prepare us for this. So being able to, as Sam says, have timely and meaningful information that we can gather insights from and make decisions. You said digital twin there. I mean, how would you describe digital twin to someone that might not know what it is? So effectively, a digital twin is a complete digital replica of an operations. It's really at the operations discretion on how many sensors they want to include in that environment. But it's being able to see in near real time what's happening on a mine site to be able to have different feeds from different sensors, drones, temperature gauges, etc., to be able to use the experience of the operators to be able to then create learning models to then feed back into the system so that irrespective of the experience of an operator, we can gather insights, change parameters for the most optimal outcome. And so do you build a a digital twin and use all of this earth observations and remote sensing data to help shape those environments? Is that how it works? Broadly speaking, I mean, the whole digital twinning realm is its own massive field with focusing from engineering points of view, also from safety point of view, and efficiencies around people operating around mine sites and particularly infrastructure. And, yeah, absolutely, um, three-dimensional models in remote sensing are used you know, really commonly and, and really increasing in terms of their detail, particularly with kind of drone-based LIDAR systems, terrestrial laser scanning systems as well. So, guys, thank you so much um, for taking part in today's episode. If you'd like to know more about EO data science, remote sensing, or our cloud capabilities within the resources industry, just visit our podcast page on ngis.com.au for links to all the resources that you'll need. You can subscribe to Location Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.